Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. I'm Stacey Francis, and today I'm going to be talking with Nancy Berner, who is the founder of Berner Law Group. It was established back in 1995. I wanted to speak specifically to Nancy because of her expertise. In fact, for the last 13 years in a row, she's been named to as a super lawyer in the field of elder law. And why this conversation is so timely is because there are potentially some significant changes that will happen if Biden gets into the Oval Office. In fact, what we're going to be talking to you about today is something that could save you thousands of dollars, in fact, tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars if there is a Biden presidency. So he has a tax game plan to increase revenue, which is obviously very needed, but it essentially could significantly change how you need to plan for your estate. And this is true for you if you're going through your divorce right now, and even more important, if you finalize your divorce and you're newly single. She has some important tips to help you not only save in taxes, but also to make sure that you are able to protect your children. And some savvy moves in your divorce planning, how you can make sure that your spouse helps fund trusts for your children to make sure that they have financial security long-term, as well as you have financial security long-term. And make sure that you stay to the end because she has some unique tips that are quite sophisticated, but don't worry. Her biggest advice is just to reach out to your estate planning attorney or reach out to Nancy to walk through them, again, to make sure that you have the proper planning in place. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce my colleague, Nancy Berner, who is going to be, again, talking about the important things you need to know in the event of a Biden presidency, and also as a divorced woman, what you need to know to make sure that your state planning is in order and that the people you love are protected. Nancy, I'm so happy to have you here today. There has been a lot in the news regarding estate planning. And I know for me, I even feel a little uneven and and not so sure-footed. But for women who have gone through a divorce, it's even more overwhelming. So can you talk to us a little bit about everything in the news and particularly if Biden is elected, he has proposed some changes in particular to what we call the step up in basis. Can you talk about number one, what is really step up in basis? Why is it even important? And do you think that his proposal, if he gets into office, actually will be put through? 
Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me here today, Stacey. The issue of step-up in basis has to do with assets that you purchase. Say, for instance, you bought a stock, Tesla stock, at $200 and it's worth $2,200. You have an increase in capital gain of $2,000. That amount is not realized until you sell the stock. So if you die, we say the only time you actually save taxes at death is in the terms of capital gains, because that stock that's valued at, that you purchased at 200, which is your basis, gets stepped up to the value on your date of death. And if on your date of death it's worth $2,200, your heirs escape the taxation on that $2,000 gain. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, I guess this is when the few times in life that death would be a good thing. <laughs> it's the only way you're going to get out of taxes, right? You can be assured of death and taxes, and this is the only way that loophole. And this has been, we're used to this. This is something that's quite new, where he would be proposing to take that away. Yeah, I mean, also realize that when you sell your house, say it's a husband and wife, that one of them owns the house, they both live there. There's a capital gains, lifetime capital gains of $250,000 each. Or if you're a single person, $250,000 that's exempt from capital gains, which is something that should have been taken into consideration if you're the spouse who was divorced and got the house because there's no sale. So you were taking the house at the lower basis. And if your plan is to sell it after you get divorced, you're going to have that full capital gains because mm -hmm. when you received it from the spouse, you received it at their low basis, right? And you only yes. have $250,000 capital gains exemption. So if there's a larger capital gains exemption, maybe the plan should be to sell it while you're still husband and wife and get both. Yeah, that. and you actually make a good point because a lot of couples right now are selling their property, particularly if they're outside an urban area, if they're within commuting distance, because we're seeing that prices, so here in New York, and you're out in Long Island and, and the Hamptons, for example, Westchester, north of New York City, we're seeing areas of also New Jersey, prices shooting through the roof for housing, because a lot of people are moving from outside the city to the suburbs, essentially. So you're right that possibly selling now when you can essentially use your $250,000 exemption and your spouse's $250,000 exemption so that you're saving on $500,000. But if she is deciding to keep the house, she eventually might pay taxes. When yeah. she sells eventually, the only real way to get out of that is to Die. Pass, away, <laughs> pass away and give it to your heirs, which is not a, a good, good right. thing. It's interesting. I have seen a few of our clients where they've kept the house, they've actually gotten remarried, that spouse has lived in the house with them to satisfy the number of years, the two out of five ownership, the two out of five occupancy, and then they get now the 250 for her and the 250 for the spouse, potentially him or, or whatever that looks like. But you kind of get have to get pretty creative, pretty creative. Right. In that case, even though she is the sole owner of the house because she's remarried and he's lived there for two out of five years, she still gets 
the additional $250,000 exemption. Yeah. And I can see this being difficult also if you have maybe a business or I live in New York City, so there are not that many farms around, but if you have a farm, and I was reading that the actual part of the reason why they put that step up in basis is that after individuals had passed away and they passed down their business to their children or they passed down their farm that had been in their, you know, in their family for, for hundreds of years, that because there was no step up in the value of that property to that value as of when the person died and they had established that business or established that farm decades and decades and decades ago, that the gain was so high and the taxes that were due were so significant that they had to sell. They had to liquidate the family business or the family farm. Well, that's, that's a strong lobby, uh, family farmers, because they, yeah. that could be harmful. The IRS attempted to do this, or Congress attempted to do this, right, because this is tax law, back in the 70s. And it was a nightmare. And they had mm-hmm. what we call carryover basis. So you didn't get a step up at death. Your heirs took the basis at yours. It was soon after that that they repealed it because it was a nightmare for the IRS. One reason is how do you determine the basis of something that's been owned for years and years and years? Yeah. Especially after a long history of having a step up, a lot of people, their estate plan is to not sell that highly appreciated property during their lifetime, realizing, well, it will be uh, valued as a date of death, and then that will be the basis, the new basis on it. So they haven't kept the records. Right? Yeah. And so what happens is a, a quirky thing that happened when they, they went to carry over basis and then quickly repealed it, there was a problem in the tax code with regard to basis. And there's a famous case, it's called Gallenstein from the Supreme Court of the United States. And the issue was with regard to a husband and wife that owned the property jointly, when one spouse dies, the Supreme Court determines that if they purchase the property before 1977, that that property will get a 100% step up in basis at the death of the first spouse. Typically, it's the spouse who had the money but I've never seen where the IRS has challenged it, although I have seen one, like, say, the, the spouse that didn't work. Generally, practitioners take it for both. So that's a caveat. When I have clients, for instance, that do revocable trust, and typically you would put half the house in each trust, if they've owned that property before 1977, you may not want to do that because once you change the deed, Gallenstein doesn't apply. So, for instance, I have a client that has property in East Hampton that's worth $3 million that they purchased for $50,000 in 1965. Wow. That's a disaster because if he dies, there's only a half a step up in basis. And then when she sells it, she still has $1.5 million or minus her half of the $50,000 in improvements. She only has a $250,000 exemption. But yeah. had they kept it in both names and not put it into the trust, then there would have been a 100% step up in basis. So even funding a trust is important. Yeah. Right? And 
again, why, and I'm going to say this a few times throughout this podcast because it's so important. When you're doing this work, when you're creating your estate plan, when you're even thinking about trust, it needs to be with an estate planning attorney because there are all these little idiosyncrasies and things that unless you're in this field living and breathing it, you're not going to know. And and invariably, you could make a mistake. So talking about that person who is going to end up, let's say, with a $3 million home, and maybe she has, you know, another million dollars of assets, and maybe even has some life insurance that would pay out to her children if, God forbid, something happened to her. Previously, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act estate and tax gift tax exemption was 11.58 million. So that's for 2020. So essentially what that means is that if she wanted to gift or she wanted to pass on to her children that amount of money, she wouldn't owe any estate tax. But I was reading that one of the proposals that Biden is putting on the table is changing that and knocking it down to lower levels closer to about five and a half million. So my first question is, for anyone who is above that, how much in tax would they owe? Is it a 10% tax for a state tax? Is it a 30% tax? Is it even more than that? So what amount of tax would they be looking at? And number two, is this something where it might make sense to just have a quick call with your state planning attorney to see if these tax laws potentially could change your situation and warrant some planning? Okay, that's a great question. Now, to understand this, remember there are two taxes when you die. There's a federal and state level. Presently, the federal is 11.58 million and is going to be, if the law is not repealed, it is adjusted for inflation each year until it sunsets at the end of 2025, right? So a lot of people on their radar was, well, I have to think about this by 2025. So that's important. So I'm going to just jump in. So the 11.58 million, essentially the federal government is saying, if you have anything below that at your death, you don't have to pay any estate tax. But then there's the state level too, right? And that's different for each state. Is that right? Yes, right. And so if we look at New York, remember Florida, for instance, has no estate tax. Let's just move to Florida right now. But okay, maybe not because it's so, so hot there. But (laughs) so New York State, the exempt is 5.85 million, which is also adjusted for inflation. But New York has a cliff, which means that if you go 5% over that, 105% of 5.85, then you get absolutely no exemption and you pay a state tax from dollar one, which is why they say it's a cliff, right? Because if you go up to $5,085,000, there's no tax. You go more than 5% over that, everything's taxed. So the other thing about New York state tax is that if you give a gift during your lifetime, so we call that gift tax, uh, not a state tax, But if you give a gift during your lifetime under New York state law, then if you survive that by three years, it doesn't come off your 5.85 million. So I'm going to put these two ideas together. 
So what happens is if I have someone right now, a single person who really is concerned about the tax, by the way, the federal tax is 40%. I don't know what Biden or the Democrats are proposing. And don't forget, Biden has to deal with the liberal side in these areas if he's putting mm-hmm. together a coalition. So while he says 5.49, depending on what the Congress looks like, there are Democrats like Saunders who said 2.5 should be the exemption. 2.5. So lower, even lower. Lower. And I think uh, Elizabeth Warren had said 3.5 million. So we don't know where it will go. It will depend on that. You have to be ready. So the bottom line is that if you give a gift under the federal law, it will come off the lifetime amount, whether you live it by three years. So, right. so if you, let's say you give a million dollar gift to your kids, you know, your $11.58 million exemption for federal is now 10 million, 10.58. Okay. So it comes off. But what you're saying is for the state purposes, if you give a gift, it doesn't reduce your benefit, but you right. have to live at least three years longer after right. the gift. That's interesting. Right. I had no clue about that. That's really interesting. And that's for all states or is that just for New York? That's for New York. That's for New York. Okay, great. But now what you have, if I have a client who, for instance, has $12 million and she Mm -hmm. wants to protect it from tax, I know that if she's likely, my hope is that she lives more than three years, I don't have to worry about the New York state tax because there will be none. And we actually save that, right? And New York state goes from seven to 16%, the highest federal rate is 40%. So if she does a gift now, say to a defective grant or trust, and I'll explain what that is, then, and she might give enough to get her under the federal where she thinks it, say $6 million. She'll use 6 million of her federal credit and probably none of the state if she survives it. So she would have fit, saved probably federal and state tax on that. It'll bring mm-hmm. her to the cliff so that her estate will never pay a New York state estate tax. It will freeze the value because $6 million now may be worth $12 million when she dies or $10 million when she dies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And yes, we've reduced the federal, but if the federal goes down to 5.45, we still may have some planning to do, right? Mm-hmm because she's lost that, she's gone over it. That's yeah. why sometimes, depending on the assets, if we can use LLCs and reduce the value of the asset going into the trust, the more you can use, the better. Because say you could use 8 million or 9 million or 10 million. I have a, a single client who's worth 22 million. I'm encouraging her to use the whole 11.58 and put it into a defective grant or trust. Because even if it goes down to five, she's already used her federal at a much higher level. And if she survives it by three years, she's also avoided 16% in New York state tax. Mm-hmm. Which is over $1.6 So there's a lot of planning that you can do. And I'd love to talk about that balance. And we're, we're talking also about big numbers. You know, and for our listeners, there may be some women who who have net worth that are significant. But for a lot of individuals, you may not have a lot of money, but often we forget about the insurance that we might have through our employer. 
any life insurance that you might have through your employer that pays to your heirs. A lot of parents, and, and if you have children, this hopefully is you, you've taken out insurance and term insurance is so inexpensive. You can pay as little as like $500 for a million dollars of coverage. And a lot of people have significant amounts because it's so inexpensive. And so even though these numbers are large and you may feel like this has nothing to do with me, often people don't realize when you add everything up, including your life insurance, you add in the value of your house, you add in all these things, you can get to much higher numbers than you ever expect. And my question to you though is, is if someone is kind of adding up those numbers and looking and saying, oh my gosh, I could be potentially subject to having to pay estate tax, either a federal estate tax or state estate tax, I need to do some planning. How do you balance between gifting and not putting yourself in a financially dangerous situation by gifting too much? And also, if you could talk about the use of a grantor trust and what does that mean? So does using a grantor trust, you talked a little bit about a defective grantor trust, does that mean if she were to be using different types of trust that those assets are no longer available for her? Or if, God forbid, she has a medical issue as she's older and needs that money, can she go ahead and use that? So what are some of the thoughts there? Okay. Now, realize that when you have a married couple, oftentimes you create a trust and the spouse and the children are beneficiaries of that trust. So that even though you give up the right, your spouse is the beneficiary, presumably you can get money out of that trust. And then you might have an insurance trust on the life of that spouse. So if they die first, you're now the beneficiary of a life insurance trust which has the same amount of money or close to it, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, when you're going through divorce, if you've already set that up, you need to consider that, right? Because Mm -hmm. if your spouse is the beneficiary of that trust and you you no longer are. But now you're talking about a single person, you don't have that option. So I set up a defective grant or trust. What does that mean? I mean, essentially, it's a trust for your children. And I'll tell you overwhelmingly, as much as we love our children and we want to leave them and their descendants the assets and preserve them from outside invaders, the best way to do it is in a trust, overwhelmingly. Whether you make them a co-trustee, a sole trustee, a sole trustee with the right to appoint an independent trustee who can make distributions to them, you want to leave it in trust because it will protect it, A, from tax of the next generation. So when they die, it goes to their children. If you've drafted this trust correctly, it will not be taxable on their estate. And so that goes tax-free. That's how you build wealth. Yeah. By putting that tax at the next level. It will protect them if they get divorced. Think about it. Whatever you leave them that's in this trust, and now you're giving it to them during lifetime, has fully protected them in case of divorce. So their spouse can't get it. They would be crazy to take money out of the trust. They're better to build wealth inside the trust that mm-hmm. has greater protection, judgment protection, bankruptcy protection. So that's number one. So you create this trust for them. The reason it's called defective is because it's defective in the fact that it's out of your estate for estate tax purposes, 
but you are the grantor for income tax purposes and you pay the income tax on it. By paying the income tax on the growth, on the income in the trust, you are actually making tax-free gifts to the trust so it can grow bigger. Typically, if I do that, the trustee has the right to reimburse you for those taxes. And that can be a yearly basis, depending. And also, working with your financial advisor, you will determine which financial assets, which investments are best under that scheme, Mm -hmm. right? What I'm hearing you say, so a woman who is going through a divorce or post-divorce that wants to make sure that her kids get a head start in life or at least assets to their name to make sure that they're going to be okay. And I know that a lot of women bring this up to us if they're worried that their husband's going to start a new family. They really want to make sure that their children are okay as he starts his new family and does whatever. So what I'm hearing is that what she can put into this grantor trust, she needs to make sure that it's not money that she necessarily needs because right. it's truly meant for the children. So whatever number goes into that, it needs to be something that she will be very financially secure without and that there's some planning that needs to happen with her estate planning attorney because to make sure that when her children pass away, that they don't have to pay Uncle Sam and a huge chunk gets taken out. So making sure that there's the right, the right wording in the trust and the way that you're saying that as long as she pays income taxes on any of that growth during her lifetime, that that's one of the ways that it can pass without having that estate tax for the children. One of the terms of the trust, the trust could also be drafted to be a grantor trust in other ways and she does we can protect her from either paying the income or not paying it on any given year in the way we draft the trust but the other thing is that if she wants to exchange property of real value between herself and the trust she will be able to for income tax purposes without changing the fact that it's a non-grantor trust and it's out of her estate for estate tax purposes. Mm-hmm. So we want it on the other side of the tax fence for estate tax, but we like the income being a grantor trust for income tax purposes because transactions between her and the trust are not recognizable. Mm-hmm. In addition, we can allow her, because now she doesn't have a spouse there to take money from the trust, to borrow from the trust for less than adequate consideration. And that allows her to get principal from the trust during her lifetime if she needs it. But it also makes it a debt of her estate that will reduce her taxable estate, which is still on the other side of the tax fence. Yeah. So what you're saying is that if, God forbid, she did need to borrow money from the trust, there would be the children's assets. But she could borrow it. And then when she passes away, her estate, whatever's left over, will reimburse the trusts to make sure that the kids are made whole. It will reduce her taxable estate because it has debt. So when we talk about trusts, a lot of times just the word trust is a scary word. There are so many different types of trusts as well. Can you talk about the key important pieces of a trust of who is the trustee 
what are the options there? And in particular for her, what is the best setup to make sure that her kids are protected, especially if the kids are young or she's not 100% sure that they have the maturity, I guess, to be able to manage the trust and make good decisions about the financial aspect? Okay, so in terms of before we get to the actual trust, because this is key towards divorce, if you are going to set up a trust for your children, I think you should consider having that set up as part of the divorce settlement so that your spouse uses part of their federal exemption to fund it, right? Because if you get the money and then you fund it, you're using all of your own federal exemption. But if part of the divorce and this is why speaking to an estate planning attorney before you get divorced or final settlement makes sense. Oh, let's put a million dollars in each trust or 500,000, whatever it might be for each child in their own trust. Now he's used half the, his exemption and you yeah. preserve that. Well, also he's used money to fund it so that, you know, if you wanted to leave 500,000, let's say for each child, he gives 500,000, you give 500,000 versus you burdening it. And it's interesting. I'm so glad that you brought this up, Nancy, because it's a very smart strategy if she's worried about the kids long term, because you're moving assets around already in the divorce, getting them set up and knowing that the kids are going to be okay financially by each of you contributing the same amount. Now, the one thing I have seen that's super naughty is that I know is the husband saying, you know what, why don't we do this? Why and we'll have you live in the house and instead of when you die the house going to your heirs, we'll just make sure that it goes to the kids. So we'll have the kids be the owners and they set up a trust and we don't have to get into the type of trust. But there are things to be careful of. A lot of times, I know as a mom, I give my kids the shirt off my back. And so, you know, again, just making sure that they're going to meet with an estate planning attorney like yourself to go over this to understand that they're not being kind of bamboozled where that house now is really the children's. And God forbid, what happens if she wants to sell the house and move somewhere else? Well, right. the kids own it. So I've seen some of those naughty things. So again, making sure that everything is above board. You understand what's going into the trust, what you have access to, what you don't have access to as well. So tell me about what a trustee is. Okay. So the trustee is the manager of the trust assets. So the trust is actually in agreement between the grantor, the person who creates the trust, and the person who's going to manage it. And when you look at a trust document, Often people say, well, what can I do if I have a trust? Well, you have to look at the trust document, not all the trust thing, right? So It's like a recipe. It's like cooking. (laughs) You have to look at the trust document. But in addition, you also need to speak to someone who knows trust law because what's not in the document is the case law and the statutes that support trust in that jurisdiction. So if it's a New York trust, There's a whole nother set of laws and case law that dictates what that trustee can do besides what's in the document. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's number one. And so you have the trustee who manages it. 
And then you have beneficiaries, the people who have a benefit from it, and there could be income beneficiaries, and then the remainder beneficiaries who receive it at the death of an individual. So if mom sets up a trust during her lifetime that she's not a beneficiary of because it's her own trust, then she wouldn't be a beneficiary, but during her lifetime, it's also not turned over to the children. So that's one thing. And there may be other ways she can control, right? So now it's in the trust. And then when she dies, it goes to the children, to their individual trust. So they become the beneficiaries, the primary beneficiaries upon her death, right? Okay. Yeah. be some beneficiaries or principal beneficiaries. It all depends on really gearing it towards the individual family and what yeah. works. Yeah. And I think that that, again, a big takeaway that trust can be created to support what your intentions are, right? Whether or not you might need access to the funds during your lifetime or not, and all these different pieces. I know we're coming up to time, and I know we've been talking a lot about women post-divorce and making sure that they are protected and if they have children that they're protected. Are there any other things to think about as she starts her life on her own to make sure that her estate planning is up to par? Right. So you definitely, if you haven't looked at your documents that you did before the divorce, you need to look at them now. I would say sooner the better, because while a divorce will negate any distributions or any bequests to your spouse, or your spouse acting in any capacity, in a lot of ways, maybe you have your in-laws who are named as trustees for those kids, right? Or who may be successor executors, maybe it's a sister-in-law or a brother-in-law, you might have named them for guardians. So you need to change those quickly because the divorce does not negate them acting. Or being, if they're remainder beneficiaries, lots of times it says, listen, my spouse and I perish, everything goes half to my husband's family, half to my, to my family. And it goes into trust for your kids. So those half of that will go to his family when your children die, if you haven't changed it. So you really need to look at that. Of course, if you do get into a new relationship and get married, you need to do a prenuptial agreement. And look at things like life insurance, because life insurance is not subject to the elective share. Typically, if you do remarry, you have to look at the documents so that if you do leave your spouse something that is negated if they remarry or haven't done a prenuptial agreement. So there yep. are a lot of you can do. Different things to plan for. And, and I'll also just do a little plug. We have a wonderful podcast on modern families and the different things that we need to think about post-divorce if you end up getting remarried. So definitely everyone who's listening to this today should check that out. I'd love, Nancy, for our listeners to know how they can contact you. And listeners, I just want to let you know, Nancy's a really special, amazing woman, and I just so respect her. And she has created her own law practice, particularly in this area of estate planning and helping individuals with trusts and so forth. And what's really unique is, number one, you have an extremely large practice, which often most estate planning firms are quite itty bitty, quite small, but also you have all women, which I think is fabulous. 
that you have all these great women who are working in this area because I think of estate planning in particular when you're talking about your children, the people you love, and how you want to be remembered. It's such a personal type of law. It's so personal. You're hearing the intimate details and nooks and crannies of everyone's life. But I just am so in awe of what you've built, of your great team. And that you have offices in several locations, which is super convenient too. So if you want to just say where your offices are and and maybe how our listeners can contact you. Sure. So we have a website, which is burnerlaw.com. We have offices in West Hampton, in Setauket, and in New York City. And we have a great website. It has lots of questions on it, links, has our phone number and how to contact us. Stacy, you know, for any of your clients, we're happy to waive a consult fee as a courtesy to you. But what I do want to say is that in the age of internet, and God knows we're all plugged in right now, even if people weren't, is that it's about advice, just like I know you do in your practice and financial planning. It's not just about the documents. It's not just about whether you buy Tesla or Apple or anyone else. It's really about the advice that you get. And yeah. I think that's important. And as women, I think we're really good at listening, listening and finding solutions and explaining. Yeah. And not explaining, really explaining, so that we want our clients to be educated before they make any decisions. And I think we're both committed to that. I cannot thank you enough, Nancy, and we are so excited to have you here to talk about this important topic, especially because it's been so in the news. And I think just the biggest takeaway is just check with an estate planning attorney before you do anything. Just make sure you're on the, you're doing all the right stuff. So thank you again for being here. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Financially Ever After today. We went through quite a bit of information, in particular, some important tax and estate planning moves that you should make in the event of a Biden presidency. Well, just because he gets into office doesn't necessarily mean that his tax plan and estate plan is going to be enacted, but it is really important and key that you are on high alert for any changes that you should be making and need to make in the event of a Biden presidency. And one of the most important things is to make sure that you have your estate planning attorney on speed dial. And whether that's your attorney that you've worked with in the past or you reach out to Nancy Berner, who was our special guest today, I encourage you to have these resources at the edge of your fingertips. There's a lot that you have to think about as a woman on your own and single. Now you are responsible for yourself and your security, and now you're responsible for the people you love. And estate planning is a huge piece of that, and it becomes even more so this year important because there is potential that there could be some significant changes coming down the line that could cost you tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in unwanted taxes. Thank you for listening. And I do want to say, if there's anything that we can do to support you, please do reach out. You can reach me at Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at FrancisFinancial.com. We have free consultations and can give you the information you need to make smart financial decisions. That's why I love this work. And that's why I love what I do every day. So please reach out. 
again, www.francisfinancial.com, or you can email me, Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Thank you, and I'll be talking to you in two weeks.